So my name is Ben Seneker. I am uh, the worship and arts pastor here. And as I said at the very beginning, Patrick and uh, his family are out of town this weekend. So um, I have the privilege of speaking to you all this morning. If you are new to Grace, if this is your first morning here, we, are, um, we do this thing called expository preaching where we choose a book of the Bible and basically go through it verse by verse. And um, we just started a new series on the book of James. Uh, we're coming out of a series on Proverbs. And uh, this series on James is going to carry us up until Advent. This is our third Sunday in the series. It's always good to um, know a little bit of the background of a, of a, of a book, of a letter, um, that you're studying, especially at the beginning, just to kind of set the context. Who's writing? Why are they writing? Uh, to whom are they writing? Uh, those sorts of questions. And um, we believe that uh, the author of the letter of James is the half-brother of Jesus. There are other groups that um, believe that it's a different James, and that's fine, and we'll all be in heaven together, and it'll be great. But us, uh, here, we believe that it is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing from Jerusalem uh, only 15 years after Jesus' ministry. So this is a, 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 one of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. And he's writing north. He's writing to Syria. There's a, there's a group of um, scattered Jewish Christians that are in a bunch of different churches around Syria, north of Jerusalem, and he's writing to them. Unlike Paul, if you think of Paul's letters, if you know some of those, he usually writes to a a particular church with a certain uh, issue going on, and he addresses them. And and there's a there's a very uh, usually has started that church. He's intimately aware with what's going on there. Uh, James is a little bit different. He's a little more broad in what he's talking about, but and that he's sending it to a bunch of different churches, but. From the text and from even our passage this morning, we can tell that he is uh, fairly aware of what's going on in some of the churches because some of the stuff he's addressing is, is uh, pretty uh, specific. However, here's my point. Some of what he says is very, very broad. And uh, some of the issues that they were facing uh, were actually quite typical amongst Christians even today. Uh, like the desire for justice on our own terms, uh, issues like anger, gossip, division. And so James is addressing these things to these churches, but uh, there's also a connection between those churches and us at Grace. Does anyone know what the connection is between those churches that James is writing to and us? It is this. We're all sinners, and we all need Jesus, and we all need to be reminded of the gospel, and the issues that he was addressing are uh, just uh, like with us because we have the same sinful tendencies, the same sin patterns, and that's why we need, we need Jesus, and we need to submit to and, and, and sit under the teachings uh, that James has for us. So with that as sort of a long-winded introduction, uh, I was wondering if you could please stand, if willing and able, for the reading of this passage from James. It's, it's the last uh, section of the first chapter, beginning at verse 19. I will read it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pray with me. Father, we desperately need your Spirit to help us to understand and see the importance of what it is that you have to say. And not only see that, but then also to apply it into our hearts in a real and lasting way. I pray that these words uh, penetrate deep, the implanted word deep, as we were just reading from Jeremiah 31, that it goes within us and it stays and it bears fruit. Help us to hear, give us ears to hear, um, and may we respond in praise to what it is you have to say. It's all for Jesus that we're here and that we're saying these things and singing these things. It's all in his name. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. During my summers in college, I worked at Camp Tacoa, which is a camp just outside of Hendersonville. I was their mountain bike guy. And so what that means is high schoolers would come in, and I would take them out about a dozen at a time. I'd take them out, and we'd go to DuPont, Bent Creek, Pisgah, wherever, and we'd go riding. It was a brutal job. Um, <laughs> um, but we had a rule that whenever we, we would go out on a ride, I would be in the front, and if I needed to communicate anything to the group, I wouldn't like just stop and yell it back. But what I would do is, is yell it to the rider behind me, who would then take that message and yell it to the rider behind them, and then all the way down the line. It's, it actually worked fairly well. Well, this one ride we were doing, uh, it was an old logging road, so it was a pretty wide trail uh, going up the steady incline, and um, I look down on the left-hand side of the trail, and I see a pretty big snake, brownish with black uh, bands, uh, curled up, and its tail was rattling. I don't know what kind it was, <laughs> but I saw it, and I knew that I had 10 riders right behind me, and so I just yelled out, snake to the right. And I could hear, snake to the right, snake to the right. right. It, it kind of sounds like there was a snake on the right, but they were saying, snake, get to the right. And I heard it go all the way down the line, and I got to a place where I felt like I could turn around and, and check on everyone. And uh, while the message had made it all the way down the line, guess what no one did? No one moved to the right. They heard the message, they passed it on, but they didn't do what the message had told them to do. They were so focused on writing. They were so focused on, on staying in line and, and hearing this and passing it on. They didn't actually hear what it had to say, and nor did they actually do what the message had told them to do. Everyone was fine. No one was bitten. Uh, but I did give them a, a pretty clear reminder for them to do what I tell them to do for their own safety, for their own, sa- uh, for their own, for their own good, and not just to hear the message and pass it along. Perhaps you can see where I'm going with this illustration. In a similar way, 
Maybe you don't. Maybe you have no idea where I'm going. But James is telling his readers, telling us, to be hearers and doers of the word and not like my chucklehead mountain bikers, hearers only. But keeping with this illustration just for a little bit longer, were my bikers, were my mountain bikers doing nothing? Were they doing nothing? No, they were doing a lot. They were riding a bicycle up a mountain, for one, and they were uh, staying in line and doing all this, and they were also dodging rocks and snakes, apparently, and uh, all kinds of other things. So they were doing a lot. The only problem is that what they were doing wasn't matching what they were hearing. And so the question for us, so this is the question I want to lay before us this morning, is not, are you doing anything? That's sort of assumed. We're all doing things. The question is, what are you doing? What are you doing? James says in verse 22 to be doers of the word and not hearers only. He doesn't just simply say be hearers and doers because, again, we're all doing. In fact, we rarely stop doing. But James focuses it and he says be hearers and doers, what? Of the word. What they were doing wasn't matching with the word that they were hearing and the word that they were receiving. And so we need to stop and reflect on this. With all of our doing, how much of our doing matches, aligns with what we're hearing, with what we're receiving, which is the Word of God. James helps us with this reflecting when he points out in verses 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, that word can be used for both, let every person be quick to hear, or quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of of God. We hear this, they heard this, but do we do it? Are we as individuals with our spouse, with our friends, with our coworkers, but also as a community, Grace Mills River, a community of believers in Jesus, are we quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? And notice that he's not saying don't ever be angry. There's a there's a time and a place for it. Patrick preached on Proverbs 14 last month on this very thing. There is a time and a place for it. But man's anger that comes from not listening, from being too quick to act, doesn't produce the righteousness, or actually in this sense, the justice of God. The the Greek word for righteousness can also mean justice. Man's anger doesn't produce that righteousness or justice of God. And so in verse 21, James sort of concludes the statement by making uh, this opening statement with this this, uh, sentence. Verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word is a phrase I want to zoom in on for just a second. We read a little earlier from Jeremiah 31. This is what James is pointing back to, Jeremiah 31. Um, this very famous uh, phrase or um, uh, uh, prophecy of the new covenant that we're now living in because of Jesus. God says that he will write his law onto our hearts. He'll put his law within us. We'll be his people, and he will be our God. That's the implanted word. We also read that parable from Jesus sowing the seeds. The seed is implanted within us, and it then bears fruit. He is the one who acts. We are the ones who receive. Uh, to receive. And, and that's an important um, 
point to make, especially as we look at verse 21. He is the one who moves. We are the ones who respond. He is the one who acts. We are the ones who receive. And that's important, again, when we look at verse 21, because it seems, and is it up there? Could you bring up verse 21 by chance, not to just put you on the spot, but, or maybe you got it on the bulletin or in your Bible? Verse 21. Yeah, that'll work. It looks like James is laying out a formula. I don't know if, you've, if you heard it uh, when I was reading it earlier if you think, or if you thought about this. It looks like James is laying out a formula for us. That first, what we need to do is put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, we need to clean up our lives. And then, once we've done this, receive with meekness the implanted word, which will do what? Save our souls. So it sounds like what, what um, James is doing is laying out this formula. Clean up your life. And then you'll be saved. And unfortunately, this is, this is kind of understood quite a bit. But is that what James is actually saying? Does that jive with Scripture where we see everywhere else? No. That's not what he's saying. Why not? Well, remember who he's speaking to. Who is he speaking to? Christians. He's speaking to Christians. Beloved. That's what this means. Beloved. Verse 19. Brothers and sisters of the faith. So why would he be saying this to those who are already believers? He wouldn't. Plus, you go to other places. I'm thinking of Romans 8, for example. It's very clear that God is the one um, who moves and we respond. If James is not laying out a formula for us in verse 21, what in the world is he saying then? Well, paraphrased, it's basically this. He's saying, look, you guys are already believers. Uh, you've received Christ. Your eternal destiny is secure. You're good to go. Nevertheless, the new life of a follower of Jesus includes both the renouncing of former ways and the adoption of new ways, Christ-honoring, Christ-centered ways. The dropping of one and picking up of another. Both of these cannot be held at the same time. So again, he's not saying clean up your life and then become a Christian. He's saying no. As you are a believer, continue to put to death the sinful nature, the, the, the flesh, as Paul writes. The mortification of the flesh. Put it to death. And grow in holiness. Another the, the term for that, sanctification. Growing in grace. Growing in holiness. You can't hold both at the same time. I want to show you guys a little illustration of um, my puppy, Stanley. He's a year and a half old, and it's amazing the uh, sermon illustrations you can get from a puppy. It's incredible. And he does this thing. Um, okay. Do you, see the, do you see the sermon illustration? Okay, I'm not just showing, let me be clear, I'm not just showing a clip of my puppy to think how cute that is, but this is a thing he does all the time, and it's so funny how he thinks he can put both toys in his one mouth at the same time, and he can't figure out why not, and I think that is a very clear illustration of what it is to be a Christian. We're trying to hold the old self and the new self at the same time. And we're like, I can't understand why. We have to put down the one and pick up the other. You guys want to watch it one more time? <laughs> now with that, a little more of a setup. Like that. Can we do it? There's the old self. There's the new self. There's the old self. There's the new self. 
There's the old self, new self, and then after he goes. Okay. <laughs> Bless his heart. James has some pretty tough language for those who think they can hold both of those at the same time. And he says you're essentially deceiving yourself. And later in the passage, he even says that if, if you think this way, your religion is actually worthless. But how do we know? How do we know if what we're doing matches or doesn't match what we're hearing? So this is a sort of a diagnostic question. How do we know if what we're doing matches with what we're hearing? So James gives us this really famous illustration at beginning at verse 22. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. He looks intently at his natural face. He sees the truth of what he really looks like and then he goes away and immediately forgets. This is where my mountain bike illustration sort of breaks down. My riders didn't see the snake. They just heard the command to move. But what if we had all stopped, circled around the snake, stared intently at it, and then immediately just walked off and forgot the potential danger of the snake? That would be ridiculous, right? That wouldn't happen. And that's James's point, And I get that he's kind of mixing the senses here. He's moved from hearing to seeing, but his point remains the same. We deceive ourselves when we hear or see the truth, the Word of God, and then forgetfully move on and do things that don't align with it, don't reflect that truth. So he gives an alternative, verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. So we've moved from looking at a mirror to now looking at a law. James, pay attention to this when you, as we go through James, because it's, it's kind of cool. He's very poetic in his writing. And he does these things called, it's called parallel, parallelism. Para, parallelism? Where you're taking these two ideas and you're sometimes contrasting or expanding on an idea. This, the, this, this, then this. He does it throughout the letter. And so he's, we're, looking at, we're looking at a mirror, but now we're looking at the law. This perfect law, this law of liberty. Uh, what is he talking about with this? The law of liberty is one of these phrases that people um, also kind of get tripped up on because don't, it's thought like, don't these terms cancel out each other? The law of liberty. Don't laws restrict liberty is the thinking. And we can sort of relate to this, right? We think we are most free when we can just do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. We think that that's liberty, just being able to do whatever, whenever. But how free are we really when we live that way? Does that particular lifestyle truly add meaning and value to a life? Is that lifestyle life-giving? It might be fun for a while, but in the end, it'll leave us empty. We need structure. We need someone outside of ourselves speaking into our lives, contradicting us, giving us boundaries, because it's within those boundaries that we thrive, that we reach our greatest Potential. This, this is what God desires for us and from us. Today, the World Equestrian Games down in Tryon are concluding. Have you guys been following this at all? Maybe you know what I'm talking about, maybe you don't. But down in Tryon, just down the road, is a major worldwide event taking place. Every four years, it's sort of like the Olympics. 
the world's greatest horses and riders um, convene and compete. And they have all kinds of events that they, that they do, jumping, endurance, um, obstacle courses. Um, but then there's one event called dressage. Does anyone know what dressage is? Some of you do. Um, I had to ask my wife quite a bit about it because I heard, I heard last week I heard some people talking about it and it sounded interesting. I wasn't eavesdropping, but I was just intently listening to what they were talking about, not being part of their conversation. And they were talking about dressage and, and Janae helped me with it. But it's this, it's essentially ballet with a horse. The poise and control that the horse and the rider have as they go through all these skills, these sideways walks, these diagonal walks, going backwards, and just all this stuff. And the rider's not even moving, but the control and the, the cues that the rider's giving the horse is pretty amazing. It's beautiful. Um, and it got me thinking sort of about this. This is a sermon illustration, so kind of go with me a little bit. Compare a dressage horse, if you, if you have a mental picture of what that looks like, just the, the, the beauty of it and all that the horse can do, compare that with a wild horse way out on the plains. That certainly has its own beauty to it, uh, running free on the plains. Uh, but, and this is where we kind of uh, change a little bit, um, but you will never see the full potential of what a horse can do when it's just riding out on the plains. It's just running and grazing some and then running some more. But to see what a horse is actually capable of, what it can do, its full, its full potential, you, you really see that in dressage. When we look at the, at the law, like we read in verse 25, when we look into the, look into the law, we're looking into the eyes of the lawgiver. God our Father, the lawgiver, is also the giver of life. It is through the law that we experience life. The law hones us. The law develops us. Who knew that horses could do what they do in dressage? But they needed something from outside of themselves to develop them and train them. Theologically, for the Christian faith, we call this sanctification. Something, someone coming from the outside and moving within us and drawing us into our more full humanity, our greater potential, led by the Spirit, blessed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, is not us, it's Him working within us. Growth in holiness, sanctification. I don't know if that illustration works. If it doesn't work, I won't use it in second service. But I, in my head, it kind of does. To see it, this wild horse... But then just have this external force, a law, working in it and pulling this, this out of it. Uh, and, and it's beautiful. Paul talks in Romans 8. If we can go there for a second. Romans 8. This amazing statement. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Well, let's just kind of stop there for a second. Again, the context is James is saying, look into the law of liberty and what do you see? Look into the law of liberty, what do you see? We see this. The law of the spirit of life has set us free. There's the liberty. And has done so in Christ Jesus. From what? The law of sin and death. Christ makes the law beautiful. It's no longer something that we stand condemned under, sin and death. But because of him, we don't fear it. We look at it and we see that it is freeing. 
he is providing these, these guidelines, these, these, these uh, restrictions, these boundaries, so that we may thrive. And it takes the Spirit to really get that to under, in, our, in our heads, but this is, this is really where James is going, where Paul is going in Romans 8. The law of God is not something to dread, it's not something to fear, it's not something to feel condemned under. But because Christ perfectly kept the law in our place, we can now look at it and see it as life-giving and not life-hindering. That's why James is saying this is the perfect law, the law of liberty. What is the law, though? I'm talking about it. What in the world is it? What, what would be a nice summary of the law? Well, this question was asked to Jesus. In Mark 12, he gives the answer. When we're talking about the law of liberty... Mark 12, Jesus says, the summary, the great summary has got two parts. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when we talk about the law of liberty, there it is. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. But here's what's interesting. Does anyone know how Jesus starts that passage? The thing that he says right before summarizing the law? He quotes Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 a little bit with that, but because um, there's a slight variation. But right at the beginning of, of this passage in Mark 12, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, and he begins with what's called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Listen. Hear, O Israel. This is what Jesus says right before he summarizes the law. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is saying, listen to me, hear this, and now do. And what is the doing? To love. To love him and to love your neighbor. At the end of the passage, we get a very specific picture of our neighbors. James references them as widows and orphans. This is the mark of pure, undefiled religion. And by the way, this is one of the few moments in the New Testament where religion, the word religion is used, much less in a positive context. Here it is. Widows and orphans. Those are our neighbors. In James's time, these were the most vulnerable of society. These were the ones whose futures were very much uncertain those who can never repay any generosity that's given them. And James is saying, go visit them in their affliction, care for them, love for them. We need to hear this as we look around to those in our own society who are the most vulnerable and how we can visit them in our affliction. And guess what? We just heard of an awesome ministry in order to do that. Liz Loop just gave this picture of going to visit our society's most vulnerable, widows and orphans, the homeless. But let's keep going with this. So, so there's an example, if you, if you wanted to, like a concrete example, what to do with this. But I want to conclude with this question. Why? James is talking about all these things to be, to be doers and not just hearers. He's talking about don't be like this guy who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Uh, look into the law because then you'll see freedom, you'll see Jesus. But then at the very end, he's like, okay, so what are you going to do with your religion? 
that's not worthless, but that is actually pure and undefiled. What are you going to do? And he said, visit the widows and orphans. The question I want to ask is, why? Sounds great. I get it. But why? And here's the answer. You were shown this same love. You were shown the same love. Why should I go and love others? Well, you were shown the same love. How? Spiritually speaking, we are all born orphans. Spiritually speaking, we're all born orphans, estranged, separated from our Father. Paul, of course, talks about this a lot in Galatians, and he's saying, listen, because of Christ, we have been adopted. We're no longer orphans, but we're sons, meaning heirs to the kingdom. That's who you are. Jesus has come to visit you in your affliction as an orphan. And he said, because of me, I'm going to draw you in. I'm going to give you my name. You will be my people and I will be your God. Not only are we born orphaned, we're also born in affliction. And this is when we know that we can never repay anything that is given to us. When James is talking about going and visiting the widows and orphans, he's talking about going and giving to those who cannot repay you for what you're giving them. Jesus giving us himself knows we can never repay that gift. Visiting us in our affliction, we know that we cannot pay that back. But Jesus came to visit you. He visits you now in whatever you're facing. In your vulnerability. The Spirit has shown you your sin, your need of a Savior. You are aware of your tendency to be slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to anger. You know of those habitual sins that keep cropping up. You know your need of receiving with meekness the implanted Spirit that will save your soul. But at the same time, we also say, what affliction? What are you talking about? I don't have an affliction. I'm not born a spiritual orphan. What are you talking about? This is when we need to look back at verses 23 and 24, where James is talking about this tendency to look at ourselves and then walk away and not really see our true self, not remember who we are, not really know our true condition. But this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit holds the law up to us as a mirror to show our need of a Savior, but also a picture of the Savior, Jesus. He is our only option. And as with, with as much love and care that I can muster, I would say with James that if you are just seeing Jesus as an option, as someone that you could just take or leave, you're deceiving yourself. I'm deceiving myself when I see Jesus this way as just someone to take or leave, an option, an accessory to my life. I'm deceiving myself. We all need him, and the most important thing that we could ever do is to receive the meekness, with meekness, the gentleness, the humility 
of the implanted word of God, the Spirit, who, because of Christ, saves our soul. Let me pray, and then we're going to move into the Lord's Supper. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, this was a lot. As is true with the letter of James, there's a lot in there. And it's true. And we need to submit to it. And I pray, while we are submitting to it, we are also resting. And knowing that because of Christ, we're free. We are free. He has come to liberate us, to keep the law, and transfer us from being condemned by it to actually be able to look at it and see that it's beautiful. And that compels us out to love the least of these, to love those in our society who are the most vulnerable. And as we love them, help us to always remember, always remember that you first loved us. And we pray this In Jesus' name, amen.